You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Good morning. We are in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you would like to join me there this morning. We'll read our passage and pray, and then um, we'll jump right in together, all right? Let's read. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. And it says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that was Peter, and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. That's the word of the Lord, let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your word, God, that is um, alive, God, and it's like bread that nourishes our soul today, God. We come here to this place, Lord, to be fed by you, Jesus. We need you. And God, I um, confess to you that I um, am too limited to communicate who you are, Lord, um, I do not have the ability to carry the weight of the gospel to share with others, Lord. And so I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, you give us, all of us, Lord, ears to hear you today. God, eyes to see you for who you are. Uh, Freedom, Lord, to um, let go of things we have held to that we might cling to the cross today, Jesus. And I believe, Lord, I'm foolish enough or crazy enough to believe that you can do something here today that would change us for eternity, God. And so we trust you with that, God. um, Be glorified in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, So today we start the close of our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, Last week, 
Pastor Dave jumped uh, ahead to chapter 16 when we were talking about the culture of the church, that the church has a culture of a lot of different things. And, and last week we talked about a culture of generosity. It was really great. And I would suggest you go listen to that. Um, but today we jump backwards into chapter 15 and this will wrap up the book of 1 Corinthians for us the next few weeks, uh, which we've been in pretty much um, the entire last year. And we've covered a lot of ground. It's been really amazing to go through this as a church, discussing everything from uh, eating meat, sacrifice to idols, to um, the spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues and, and everything in between. It's been so good to listen to what Paul had to say to the church in Corinth, which is so much like our church. Corinth is so much like our city. And so it's been really re uh, relevant for us to study what Paul had to say to them. Uh, we're much alike with them and we have much to glean from Paul's instruction. So with that in mind, we turn today to the subject that Paul describes as of first importance. Uh, this is the weightiest thing that he has discussed thus far uh, in his letter to the church in Corinth. Um, he begins this portion as he's wrapping up his letter by saying, I want to remind you of something. I want to remind you of the gospel. Uh, Paul is winding down his instruction by leading the Corinthians into a time of remembrance. And, and there is a theme all throughout scripture from Genesis all the way through uh, of God instructing his people, remember, remember, remember what I've done, remember what I said, remember who I am and remember who you are. And, and Paul is now leading the Corinthians as he's closing this letter. He's leading them into a time of remembrance. So uh, today we're going to look at three main sections of this scripture, okay? Uh, these are not uh, talking points because honestly, I make talking points and by the second one, I'm like lost in the wilderness. So we are just going to focus on themes of scripture and uh, today we're going to focus on this first part. Uh, I want to remind you where Paul says, I want to bring you into a time of remembrance and we'll talk about why we remember and what we are to remember and then... Uh, what it is that Paul is leading them to, he says, to talk about the gospel. And we will talk about what the gospel is, what the gospel isn't, and what the gospel does. And lastly, we'll finish where Paul finishes. By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, we are what we are and who we are. Okay? That sound good? Well, even if it doesn't, that's what we're doing. So, <laughs> so let's do it. Um, Thanks, Dad. Um, I want to remind you, this is where Paul uh, begins in this section. Paul identifies the need for the Corinthian church um, to remember the very foundation they're standing on. The very foundation that they're standing on. And, and so some people have asked, why does Paul wait to the end? He talks about all these different subjects. Why does he wait to the end to get to the gospel? Uh, what Karl Barth, Barth uh, the theologian, calls uh, the crown of this letter. Why does he wait for the crown at the very end? Um, one theologian said it was uh, to, hum uh, to, to bring the church to so much humility <laughs> through all of the instruction he'd given them that they'd be in a place to receive the gospel. And isn't that a huge part of hearing the gospel that we get to a place of realizing we need it, 
That's what Paul has, has brought the church through. He said, you know, you messed up communion. People are getting drunk on communion wine. Uh, you, you messed up the roles in the church. Uh, you messed up the order of worship and people, uh, you know, praying over each other in total chaos. Uh, and he just is kind of admonishing them all the way. And then he says to finish, but remember the gospel. Remember the foundation that you're standing on. And I think this implies to us that the church can get really caught up in the minors and oftentimes forget or neglect the majors. We get oftentimes caught in the minors and forget about the majors. I've met with um, several couples recently who are dating in our church. And uh, ironically, they've brought this very subject uh, into to my counseling office and they said, um, we come from different faith backgrounds, we come from different maybe denominations, and um, we have these sticking points that we just can't agree on. What do we do with that? How do we communicate when uh, we don't agree on these things? And as we begin to uh, kind of unearth these topics, they are usually minors, not majors. Um, I won't use one of their examples, but I'll give you a different one. Um, and you're going to think this is stupid, but this is a real thing. Uh, people argue about if Adam had a belly button. Seriously, uh, this is a thing. Uh, people argue about if Adam, think about it. Did he have a belly button? You don't know, do you? <laughs> I don't know either. Um, but listen, there was a church who will go unnamed, but this is a real story, who uh, was renovating their sanctuary. And the centerpiece of the sanctuary was a beautiful stained glass window. And part of that stained glass window was a, a, a section that was to depict Adam and Eve. And there began a discussion and then an argument over whether Adam should have a belly button or not in the stained glass window. And so literally this went on and the church was divided on the pro belly button side versus the no belly button side. And you can just imagine like pro belly button, no belly button, pro belly button, no belly button. And this was just divided the church completely. Literally the church split, people left. And this is stupid, <laughs> a minor thing. And we should keep this in mind when we are telling people about Christ and, and, and sharing the gospel to major in the majors and not major in the minors. Don't start with the tribulation <laughs> when you're talking to someone, okay? Major in the majors, not in the minors. So Paul has spent the entirety of his letter to the Corinthian church touching on a lot of important issues. It doesn't mean the minor things aren't important, but it means it's not their major things. Paul comes back at the end of his letter, remember, of everything we've talked about, remember, this is the foundation of your faith. Keep the majors, the majors. <clears throat> this is why Paul says we must remember this as of first importance. And my daughter Reagan understands this. Uh, Reagan is very black and white in the way she thinks. Um, you are either a good person who loves Jesus or probably a demon. Uh, and there's no in-between. There's no in-between. So I don't know if you know Reagan or not, but be careful uh, how you introduce yourself. Um, so my wife and I, um, there, was, there was a really dear friend of ours who uh, was, uh, she was actually a student that we had taught at the school we were at. And uh, she went on to college, was getting ready to graduate, and she was dating this guy. And uh, so she wanted to bring him home and, and have us meet him. 
And so uh, Reagan's very protective of her friends. And um, so we, we go out to lunch with this guy and she's gonna sniff this guy out. And literally she talks about like, I'm gonna find out where he stands on this, this and this. And she's four. <laughs> and at this time. And um, so we go to lunch with this guy and we're talking, having a good, nice guy, having a good conversation and kind of conversation winds down and Reagan says, do you believe Jesus died for your sins? And the guy's a gamer and he's like, well, yeah, yeah, I do believe that. And Reagan says, well, that's good. <laughs> because if you didn't, you're going in the lake of fire. <laughs> I'm not joking, those were her exact words. Ask Noel afterwards. That's good because if not, you're going in the lake of fire. She knows the majors and she doesn't get hung up on the minors. Okay, that's my daughter. She gets that from her mom, I think. So if we then know it's important to major in the majors, then Paul puts plainly what the majors involve, what we are to hold as majors. And he puts that very simply, he says, remember the gospel Verse one, he says, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. So then, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Before we dive into what the gospel is, I want to step back and clarify what the gospel is not what the gospel is not. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a British uh, evangelical minister and he also happened to be a medical doctor because uh, he just had that much time on his hands. And so he uh, had this diagnostic question that he would ask people. That's what doctors do, right? They diagnose people. And so uh, he would preach a message and then he'd be talking to the people and he would ask people, do you believe you're a Christian? And he'd listen to their answer. And if they answered, well, yes, I am a Christian. I live a very good life. And I try really, really hard to be like Jesus. Or if they replied, no, I don't think I can call myself a Christian yet. I'm just not good enough. I'm working on it though. Then Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones would say that these people have no concept of what the gospel says. They have no concept of it. The gospel is not, the gospel is not, instructions on how to live a good life. It's not what the gospel is. Look at what Paul says in this uh, section of scripture that we've just read. There are no instructions in this portion of scripture. The gospel is not a guideline for spiritual living. This is where the whole WWJD movement fell apart. How many of you lived through WWJD? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm old, there are not many hands up. Um, okay, so this was such a like Christian subculture, like Christianese thing um, where people made bracelets and t-shirts and bumper stickers and the, the message was essentially, if you get into a tough situation, you just ask, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And here's why that falls apart. We can't ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? Because what Jesus did, we cannot do. We could never do. And that's the point. 
That's why he's Jesus. <laughs> if we were able to say, whatever Jesus did, I'll just do that, then by reasonable logic, we're also saying, I don't need Jesus to do that for me. I can do it for myself. Just give me the steps. Just tell me what to do and I'll get it done. In that case, you don't need a savior because you are the savior. And this is not God's design for us. In Matthew uh, chapter seven, verse 22 and 23, we get a chilling glimpse, a chilling glimpse of what God has designed and how we can get caught in the minors. Listen, this is what it says. Verses 22 and 23, Matthew chapter seven. This is Jesus speaking. He says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons. And in your name, perform many miracles. Think about that for a second. If you knew someone who was performing these things, prophesying regularly, casting out demons, performing miracles, most of us would say, wow, that is a very holy, righteous person. Right? Listen to Jesus' response. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Ouch. If the gospel were a set of instructions about what to do for God, then he would have been quite pleased with these guys, wouldn't he? He would have said, well done. You did so much good stuff. Come on in. Or he would have said, I'd like to let you in, but there were a few more things I needed you to do and you just didn't get them done. I'm sorry, I can't let you in. But it's not tied to either of those things. Jesus said, I never knew you. He pushes them away. And why? Because God doesn't want our stuff. He wants us. Can we just sit on that for a second? He doesn't want our stuff. He wants us. He wants to know you and wants you to know him. This might be the scariest thing for us. How many people in your life are, really know you? <laughs> this is one of the, the hardest parts about getting married, honestly. It's you become so intertwined with a person, they know all of your junk. There's no place to hide. <laughs> they know your faults and your weaknesses it's the scariest thing. It's why so many people hold back. Because being known is scary. And yet that is what God is saying. Like, I want to know you. And I want you to know me. 
John um, 15, chapter four and five, gives us an invitation from God. He shares his heart for us. Uh, This is what he says. John 15, four and five says, remain in me. Other translations say abide in me. Remain in me and also I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What is this saying? It's saying that these men who would prophesy and heal and deliver people from demons looked like they were bearing good fruit. But Christ is saying they weren't attached to the vine. And if you're not attached to the vine, you can't do anything. Man, this is hard to say, and I'm sure it's hard to hear. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. That's his message to us. There's an invitation here. Just be with me, God says. Abide in me, remain in me, and I also remain in you. God wants to know you intimately and wants to be known by you intimately. So this should free us from not having to try and do things for God and just be. Whatever comes of your life will not be because of your great effort, but because you stayed connected to the vine and that will bear good fruit, good fruit. That's the premise of the gospel The gospel does not instruct us in what to do, but instead proclaims what has already been done. Amen? It is not what we do, it is what has already been done for us. The gospel is a proclamation. That word gospel, it's actually a picture of a herald uh, who would jump on a horse with good news. Maybe there was a victory in battle or uh, the king had returned or the king uh, had a son, a new heir to the throne and word would go out to all the corners of the kingdom. The gospel would go out. Good news spread throughout the kingdom. That's what that word gospel means. It's news. And what do we do with news We don't do news. If I open the San Francisco Chronicle and it says the Dow Jones is up 16,000 points today, I don't say, ah, I'll go do that. I don't, you don't do news. What do we do? We receive news. We digest news. We contemplate news. We meditate on it. What, God is, or what Paul is trying to remind the Corinthian church about is the good news of their rescue. Paul's sharing the good news of a great victory in the kingdom. And not only that, but the victor, the rescuer, the king, Jesus. See, Christ is the gospel. Christ is the good news that fulfills the story which began in Genesis and runs completely through to the end of Revelation. The complete story arc of the Bible, everything 
in this from beginning to end hinges on Christ. Hinges on Christ. That's why J.R.R. Tolkien, the new Hobbit movie's coming out, super stoked. (laughs) That's why Tolkien said that for all of humanity, it has this, this desire to lose themselves in a story. Think about your favorite movie. Think about your favorite story that you re- you've read. It goes something like this. At the beginning, things were right and things were good. And then something happened where that goodness was broken or fell apart. And we long for everything in the story moves toward resolving that brokenness and getting back to what was good. For that to happen, there has to be a catalyst. It has to be a game changer, a hero or a heroine. And in the greatest stories that we have all read, that heroine, that catalyst, that hero gives of themselves sacrificially to usher us into return to the good. Do you understand that's what everything in this whole book is talking about? That it was good at the beginning. There was no separation between us and God. And then there was brokenness and shame and fear that was not there before. And someone has to make it right. And God says, it is so important to me, you are so important to me that I will make it right. And our hero comes and he gives of himself fully, sacrificially. And everything moves us back to a return. That is what the gospel is. That is the gospel story that we are restored back to what was between us and God. It's what our heart longs for. It's why we love sunsets. It's why we we long to be in relationship with one another. It is an echo, it is a calling of what once was. Too often, we as Christians, we we hope in that resolution in heaven. We hope that it will be like a, a great party here on earth with mansions for everyone and streets of gold and uh, really good music and pets like lions and bears and things. Um, and we, we have this idea of that's what heaven will be like. It'll be like all the good things we have here. It'll be so much more than that. My youth pastor um, in high school said that he thought heaven was going to be uh, him in a beach lounge chair in the sand, hooked up to an IV, which pumped uh, Hershey's chocolate syrup right into his veins. (laughs) You can see I had a whack theology growing up. We, We imagine that heaven will be like all our best stuff here, 
but it'll be so much more than that because heaven is not just a bunch of gifts we get for a job well done. If we think that's what heaven is, we underestimate God's love. Becoming a Christian is not a pursuit of right living to earn treasures. Becoming a Christian is actually receiving Christ as the ultimate reward. The ultimate reward that we are no longer, that love that we have pursued all of our life, that we have scratched and clawed and weeped and bled for, is given to us freely. And we are restored. That is our greatest reward, Christ himself. John Piper puts it this way, and I haven't heard it or read it put a better way. Um, this is the way he, he explains it. The criti critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or natural disaster. If you could have all of that, could you be satisfied in heaven if Christ were not there? If you had all the best stuff from earth, from our life here, and Christ were absent, would that be enough? If it is, then you have a misunderstanding of what this whole journey is about. The good news of the gospel is not that we get a ticket out of here to a bungalow in the big resort in the sky. The gospel is our ransom, our rescue from our brokenness back into the family of God our rescue, that God is the gift in and of himself. But Paul doesn't stop there as he's explaining this to the Corinthians. He doesn't stop there. Paul says, I want you to remember the message of the gospel, but I also want you to remember the facts and the validity of the news I shared with you. There's a lot of evidence that says that this first letter to the Corinthians is the oldest of all the books in the New Testament. That it was written somewhere between 16 to 20 years after the death of Jesus. Paul doesn't say to the Corinthian church, let me tell you a tale. Let me tell you a fairy tale. He doesn't say, let me share with you an allegory that you can sit in a group discussion and kind of find the hidden meaning. No, he says, Remember what happened. Remember what happened. Not only does he give the good news of what the gospel is, he says, remember the truth of it, the validity. This is history we're talking about, not philosophy. Paul reminds the Corinthian church of the gospel message. Christ died for our sins, according to scripture, was buried, was raised on the third day, according to scriptures. And then he gets into the facts Go talk to these people, he said. He appeared to Cephas, who was Peter, and then to the 12, and then to more than 500 of his brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Then he appeared to James, Jesus' brother, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. 
Paul is laying down a factual account of what happened. These are firsthand accounts. These are names of people that the Corinthians could go to and ask questions about this news. And this is why this is so important. Because if it were just a really good story, like one of Tolkien's stories, it might give us hope. It might, it might entertain us. It might even lift our spirits for a bit. But Paul says, we're not talking about a story. We're talking about history. We're talking about an actual event. There was an empty tomb and Christ appeared after his death. That has to be true to believe anything else. That has to be true. N.T. Wright put it this way about the validity and necessity of the resurrection of Christ. He said, if there were only an empty tomb, but no sightings by real people who could be questioned, then everyone would have simply believed the body was stolen out of the tomb. On the other hand, if there were only eyewitness accounts, but the body was still in the tomb, people would think it was a hallucination or a hoax. But only if, only if both were true, there was an empty tomb and there were people to testify that they encountered Christ. Only if both were true, does the proclamation of Christ be true. So if you came here today, understanding that Christianity is a religion that helps us feel good about ourselves, or have some good proverbial lessons to live by, then you're not giving the gospel its full weight in history. Paul is giving historical footnotes. He's giving references that can be checked to assure new believers that the gospel is, is true. It's not just a story, it's history. So when people say, and this often happens in our city, Oh, you're a Christian? Good for you. That probably helps you sleep at night. That probably helps you live your life. <clears throat> I've had people say, you know, I know Christianity is good for people. Some people need a crutch to stand on. Some people need a little something to lift them up in hard times. That's okay. <laughs> Don't get offended. <laughs> it's the way people view Christianity. And my response uh, to those people is, have you read any of this? <laughs> this is not basic instructions before leaving earth. Um, so lame, so dumb. This is, um, this is, this entire book just slams in the face of everything that's easy. And, and everything that we naturally would believe is, is good. It flies in the face of that. And, and I, I would say, do you think that the gospel made Paul's life easier? Paul spent the entirety of the early part of his life hunting down anyone who believed the gospel. Hunting them down, literally. Chasing them down, imprisoning them until they were killed. That was Paul's life his early life, until he encounters Christ. And then he's on the run from the people who are hunting him the rest of his life.
The gospel did not make Paul's life easy. The gospel was not a crutch for Paul to stand on in difficult times. So why, why did believers hold on to this? Why did people go to their martyrdom being burned at the stake? Would they do that for a good story? Or were people fed as entertainment to wild animals holding on to this because it was a good fairy tale? There had to be some validity to it. There had to be. Because the evidence is overwhelming. But not just that. Not only do we have the facts and the references and the people and the accounts, but if you have ever experienced someone who has gone from not knowing Christ intimately to knowing Christ intimately, truly, then you have observed a transformation, a transformation in the person. The gospel does something to us. The gospel transforms us. And so now, we don't usually do this, um, but as I was kind of preparing this portion, I was thinking, God, what's a really good testimony I could share? A really good example of someone. I was thinking of many of you who I've sat down with and talked with. There's so many rich testimonies. If you're here and you don't know Christ, would you find someone before you leave today and just ask them, what has it done for you? Is it really true? Because there's so many rich testimonies in this church. But I went, I went to bed thinking, God, would you just give me a, a testimony to share right here? And I woke up this morning and I saw Tarek's face, <laughs> which is a little weird. <laughs> it's not the easiest way to wake up. Um, if you don't know Pastor Tarek, um, he's one of our pastors here on staff. He's a dear brother who I love with all of my heart. Um, and I've asked him to come and share his transformation story, so. Thanks, sorry dude. So, um, well it's not easy to describe what my life was like before I started following Jesus. And um, I just also have to say, based on the last time that um, Pastor Dave taught and he used that Nacho Libre um, reference at the beginning of the, the sermon, uh, the Nacho Libre theme song is I am, I am, I am. Um, so obviously none of really you guys have song. seen the movie, but um, <laughs> that's just playing in my head right now. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. So uh, anyhow, there were a lot of um, similarities in my life now, except um, for one big difference. And that's clearly the direction of where my life was heading or is heading. And looking into my past, uh, the month of November was never, never a good month for me. Uh, each year as family and friends would prepare to celebrate Thanksgiving and share time and uh, good meals with one another, um, I would somehow find myself locked up in county jail facing charges on drugs or some other drug-related charges. Uh, the arrests happened year after year, uh, every November in uh, 1994, 1995, 1996, uh, until I actually just began anticipating these arrests happening in November. But soon after each arrest, I was set free on bail, uh, released on um, either I bailed out or was released on some technica technicality and never really faced any real consequences. As a known drug dealer in the state of Florida um, with various arrests in South Carolina, North Carolina, 
Um, I spent uh, a good amount of time in my life uh, in preparation um, for avoiding the law, but I, 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 I mean, I, I just was breaking the law in order to avoid uh, being caught, so, or I would prepare to avoid breaking the law uh, in order to avoid being, being caught. And that really is one theme that uh, dominated my life. I spent all this time preparing myself to sin and, um, and presenting myself to sin also at the same time. Um, but it didn't really change the outcome of eventually where I would end up. In November of 1998, the federal government indicted me on conspiracy drug charges for uh, conspiracy to distribute marijuana and ecstasy. And uh, I turned myself in and I served three years and a month in federal prison. Now, that was the first time that I actually ever suffered any consequences in my life. Um, but I remained determined to, as I got myself into this mess, I wanted to also get myself out of this situation on my own terms. But after serving my time, it wasn't long before I was back before the federal judge. Um, and that was just one and a half years into my federal supervision. Uh, I faced returning back to prison for violating the terms of my probation. I asked the judge if I could go to rehab uh, for the very first time. I'd never been to a uh, drug rehab. Uh, after all, uh, drug or rehab was for quitters. Uh, I wasn't. And, um, and uh, so I went to uh, Calvary Ranch, which is a Christian drug and alcohol rehab located in, down in Lakeside, California. Uh, now, as I walked into this program, I literally was walking up the steps uh, that they have to, this, to the main offices there. And um, I asked Jesus at that moment, I said, I just basically out loud said, okay, Jesus, if you're the son of God, then show me. And wondering if at this point, uh, I was 33 years old, wondering that, um, okay, this is all that my life has meant to be. And uh, my best thinking has got me three years in federal prison, maybe that this is all that life had to offer. And this was just my lot in life. Um, but that day I finally surrendered my life to Jesus and prayed a simple prayer with one of the elders asking Jesus to put my life back together. So a few days later I was baptized and um, I wanted to know what the most important thing was that I had to do in that program. And I was determined to do it, um, kind of like how I did my time. Um, and I, I just, I didn't care what it was, whether it was to pray, serve, give, I just wanted uh, someone to tell me what to do and I would do it. But the gospel isn't about what I did or what I didn't do, um, but rather what I believe and believing what I have become. And so believing that I had become adopted into the family of God for putting my trust in Jesus finally made me free for the first time. It made me free from um, trying to fit into society uh, by being a con and uh, it also made me free from trying to avoid the law. So not knowing any Christians outside of the ranch, I asked to stay there after completing my 30-day program. And a few months later, uh, I came on staff there at the ranch and uh, continued my discipleship there until I moved to Santa Barbara in 2004 and began attending a, a, a new church called Reality Carpinteria. <laughs> now, um, being there in Santa Barbara and being outside of the ranch for the very first time, I was learning how to live my life as a Christian. And um, really what I saw was that my life was just beginning to flourish. 
And I had, um, so after obtaining a real estate license and uh, a professional designation in finance, I went back to school, I finished my bachelor's, my master's degree. Uh, I thought that certainly Santa Barbara was gonna be like my final destination that I had arrived and all of these good things were happening there. Um, but God obviously had different plans. Um, I met Dave Lomas uh, during an internship that I served at, uh, at Reality Carpinteria one summer, and he was assigned to me for pastoral accountability. Um, and as I began to sense a call to San Francisco, I realized that uh, once again, I was starting to hold on to my own accomplishments, um, what I had done and what I had completed, and uh, that I was holding on to even the church Reality Carpinteria, that I was holding on to the idea of living in Santa Barbara um, for the rest of my life rather than following Jesus. And I had helped Dave with all the logistics for planning all the prayer tours and, and things and, and starting this church. Uh, and soon afterwards, I met Erica in a community group. And I bet you now that community group signups are probably gonna explode. Um, <laughs> but, um, Pretty much the rest is history, but again, if, if uh, the, just the transformed life, uh, I, people ask me all the time, you know, what is it? How did you stop using drugs? How did you stop selling drugs? How did you do all this stuff? And um, I, I wish I had like a magic bullet answer, but, but really it is just the transforming power of the gospel and hearing the word and, and applying it in my life and, and being a recipient of that grace. Thanks. I love that story. Um, okay, so here's the challenge with someone giving their testimony. Is that uh, you might leave here after this and say, can you believe he did that? Can you believe that was his life before? <clears throat> and if you do, if, if uh, Pastor Tarek's past life and sin and brokenness are what gets glorified, um, then we've missed the point. Um, Tarek has a new heart and a new spirit and he's a new man. Um, and there's no program that does that. <laughs> it is the power of the gospel. It's everything that Paul was, was teaching the Corinthian church. And so as we close today, um, we wanna close where Paul finishes. He says, um, I have no right to be where I'm at. <laughs> Paul says, I persecuted the church. I hunted people down and killed them for an opposing view of mine. I was an enemy of God. I have no right to stand here, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And we want to enter into a time of response and worship where Paul leaves us here saying, God, I, we have no right. We have no leg to stand on here. If, if what you say is true and everything that I've done for you is like filthy rags, like filthy rags, if that's the way you view my goodness in myself, then it's only by your grace. It's only because you love me in this radical way that I can stand here. 
So let us respond to the Lord now. Only by the grace of God, I have what I have. Only by the grace of God, I live and I move and I have my being. Only by the grace of God, I stand here. Would we remember God's grace for us? Would we hold on to God's grace as first importance? And maybe for the first time today, would you receive God's grace for you? Let's pray. Lord God, we want to enter into this time, God, which is the most important time of our morning, Lord God, if we simply came to sing and we came to listen, Lord God, we would leave empty. But we believe, Lord, as we enter into this time, we can experience you, Jesus. I'm, I'm crazy and foolish, to, uh, fool and, foolish enough, God, and I can't talk sometimes, uh, to believe that you, Lord, are present here. God, that you have a word for your children, your sons and daughters. You wouldn't have them leave this place without hearing from you, without experiencing you, without seeing you with new eyes. So God, as we respond to you in our worship, as we respond by taking communion, remembering Christ's sacrifice, as we respond in prayer together, Lord, would you meet us? Would you meet us here? In Jesus' name, amen.